Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Well, thank you for sitting down with me today. Uh, who are you and what book are we talking about today? I'm Stephen Ross, and I've written a book called Youth Culture and the Post-War British Novel. I teach at the University of Victoria, teach English and cultural, social, and political thought. And uh, yeah, I'm just here to, to chat about the book today. So why did you decide to focus on youth after the war versus the beginning of the 20th century? What was it about after the Second World War that struck you as important? Right. Well, I mean, a couple of things happened, and, and as is often the case, it was a lot more about just exigency than anything else. Um, I had been teaching at the university for, I guess, about four or five years at the time, and my department chair came down the hall and said, I've assigned you to teach post-war British fiction in the fall. And I said, right, but I specialize in pre-war British fiction. And she said, right, but you were hired to teach 20th century British fiction, so you're teaching post-war British fiction in the fall, uh, and which I didn't really have a good answer for. <laughs> so I thought, all right then. Um, and I wrote down uh, a list of sort of all of the, the 20th century, the post-war 20th century British novels that I was familiar enough with that I thought I could create a syllabus out of. And as it turned out, they were all, uh, they all had to do with youth culture and with young people. Uh, so, I mean, the post-war focus was really just a function of departmental need uh, in the first instance. As I started to work on it more and started to do more research, I discovered that, um, you know, there have always been young people and the category of adolescence was, uh, was sort of created in about 1904. And, Right before the war, there were the beginnings of what might be thought of as youth culture in, in the kind of shape that it took um, after the war. But the war intervened and, and shut down a lot of that uh, and channeled a lot of it in funny ways. So the post-war is really when we get that right combination, that cocktail of um, conditions that comes up in the post-war where you get prosperity, get young people with a lot of rights uh, and very little in the way of responsibilities, money, time, boredom, and a combination of that and a sort of burgeoning youth cultural movement that starts with popular music has everything to do with the American presence in, uh, in Britain and in France right after the war. And then you get the invention of the teenager as a demographic. Right? There have always been people of teen age, uh, but it's as a demographic that teenagers emerge in the, uh, the post-war moment. 
And I mean that in terms of they're a group that can be marketed to, they're a group that can be characterized and can be, uh, can be thought of as having specific set of identities, interests, marketing predilections, purchasing power, and so on. That, so are you suggesting that teenager is a demographic for advertising that it's created by the market? Or it's the first largely. generation to be subject to a American logic of the market? It is largely the product of the post-war consumer economy and particularly the boom in the post-war consumer economy coming out of the United States. That combined with the easy transmission of media across, much easier transmission of media from, uh, from the United States across to Europe and back again, makes the teenager emerge as a cultural phenomenon that is simultaneously a feature of, uh, of marketing and, uh, and, and a cultural force in its own right. I'm thinking about the hashtag, OK Boomer. That is making its rounds right now. Right. And it seems like your book is really examining the birth of that precise generation. And they've been through a lot, right? I mean, they were the first generation after that Second World War, uh, the Cold War. And it's sort of interesting to see your book coming out at this time when OK Boomer is in common parlance and perhaps a rallying cry around a generational shift, perhaps... Right? Definitely. Where do you see your book fitting into in the birth of that generation, of the, the birth of the boomer? Right. Well, I mean, in a certain sense, it's, it's what I've come to think of since publishing the book as boomer studies, <laughs> uh, which is to say an, an entire field devoted to that generation and to understanding the, the post-war baby boom generation, which is technically... 1946 through about 68 um, as a generation that invents youth culture as we have it. They invent the notion of the teenager. They invent the notion of the teenage dance, for example. You have dances and dance halls and things like that through the teens and the 20s and the 30s and into the 40s, but we don't have uh, rock and roll, for example, until the post-war and we don't have that, uh, that combination of, uh, of, of cultural features that comes together with the baby boomers as the group that is simply the most privileged and prosperous in the history of the world. So it's a huge demographic bulge in terms of population, but it's also the group for which the war was fought in a very real sense. So if you take a look at the first generation of boomers born in 45, 46, they become what we would think of as teenagers around 1958. And 58 is a major year. 58 is the year that we get the first rock and roll hit out of England with Cliff Richard's Move It. It's also the year that we get Concrete Jungle uh, and circulating through, uh, through movie theaters. It leads us into the to 1960 and to 63, when we start to get the mods and the rockers and the clashes on the beaches of Brighton and so on, which were massively overplayed in the media, but that tension was there. And the big difference, I think, is that young people, the, the young people who came of age in the 50s and the 60s, thought of themselves as a viable cultural force, uh, as a group. They had a group identity even when that was riven by divisions between mods and rockers and hippies and punks and skinheads and so on, they still 
thought in that first generation, at least, of themselves as having a cultural identity as a group. What happens subsequently is that having invented the category to describe themselves, they then began to impose it on subsequent generations. So if you go from 58 to 71, which is another 13-year gap, the teenagers who became teenagers in, say, 58 to 60 are now in their 20s in the early 1970s, and you get a dramatic shift. So you start to get music uh, and stories that are about youth culture as a kind of self-conscious phenomenon. So you get, uh, you get Led Zeppelin singing, It's been a long time since I rocked and rolled. It's been a long time since I did the stroll. And that's not that long ago. I mean, it's, it's a dozen years maximum, but it's given a kind of historical perspective. And it creates this condition where today, for example, when a kid turns 13, everyone expects that they're going to act like the stereotypical teenager. But the stereotypical teenager is a baby boomer trope. It's a, it's a trope invented by boomers to describe their own sort of anarchic privileged impulses, and which is then subsequently uh, laid down as a prescriptive category for teenagers today. So I think the OK Boomer phenomenon has a lot to do with pointing out the kind of hypocrisy that young people have always pointed out towards their, their parent and grandparent generations. It's sort of saying, you know, you had these values when you were young. Now that we have those values, you've turned around and you're, you're saying that the values are no good and, and they're no use. Today, it's got the added inflection of this kind of existential crisis, which is that whether it's the boomer's fault or not, and I think that's probably a bad question to ask, and it's, it's, a, it's a misleading direction to go, what happened during the hegemony, if you like, or the tyranny of the baby boom was a massive proliferation of fossil fuel consumption, massive environmental degradation, massive uh, expansion of the world economy in ways that were unsustainable, the institutionalization of the idea that economies must grow infinitely, and so on, that have created conditions of crisis for today's teenagers who don't want to act like their parents and grandparents did when they were teenagers, and who view uh, the the righteousness or the the uh, the sanctimony of those generations as a kind of grotesque hypocrisy. Uh, so it's a hypocrisy, but it's a hypocrisy on a sort of cosmic frame. And I think that the OK Boomer um, dig is a way of saying that you know you've already had your day, you did what you did, you enjoyed yourselves. But now you need to stand aside because the conditions that have followed upon your, your supremacy are not like anything you ever dealt with before, right? So there are just simple things like a baby boomer would have had to work 300 hours at minimum wage to a 40-year college tuition. Today, it's something like 4,000 hours at minimum wage to afford a year of college tuition. It's just, it, it, it is, the, the differences are off the charts. Um, and so what we know about the baby boomers and what the baby boomers went through is in some senses laughably inapplicable to today's world. My parents went to, to, uh, went abroad 
returned in the early 1970s, as they proudly told me for much of my childhood, with 35 cents in their pockets. They bought a house two years later. That's inconceivable today. First of all, to travel and, and come back in the black is inconceivable. To, to be in your mid-twenties and not be uh, feeling hopelessly mired in debt is a relatively uncommon experience these days. And I don't think it's, uh, it's an accident that today's generation is supposedly more risk-averse than any generation since the Great Depression. Absolutely. And in terms of the contribution your book makes to these wider discussions, um, where do you see your scholarly impact happening with the creation of this book? Well, I wrote the book to try to sort of straddle the boundary between academic and popular audiences, but really leaning towards popular audiences. I think it has one footnote in the entire book. Uh, it was not my intention to write a scholarly treatment of these novels, in large part because they're hugely popular novels and they maintain their popularity. They are still popular. A Clockwork Orange, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, The Buddha of Suburbia, The Rachel Papers, Train Spotting, they are still popular books. Train Spotting still sells out and has to be in one bookstore in town here, famously kept behind the counter because it gets shoplifted so frequently. So I wanted to try to reach the people who, who still love those novels and people who are new to them, because it's a strange phenomenon to me that we're not just talking about novels like Train, Train Spotting was published in 1993. So it's already 25 years old. Saturday Night and Sunday Morning was published in 1958. So we're talking about books where we have, we have several generations of young people admiring and identifying with characters and situations in the same works. So a, a young person today who reads Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and reads about Arthur Seaton and thinks about his anarchic impulses and the fact that he has steady work in a factory, but there is no housing. He can't move out of his parents' house because there's nowhere for him to move to, which means that he's held in this pattern of arrested adolescence. He can't propose to his girlfriend once he finally decides he wants to because there isn't anywhere for them to move. There's a new housing estate being built out in the country, but it's not built yet. And this post-war housing crunch contributes to the rise of the teenager because young men after the war were making as much or more than their fathers were, but they didn't have anywhere to move to. They couldn't start their lives. So they were held in this pattern of, of as I say, arrested adolescence. That still resonates today. Young people today, largely speaking, cannot afford houses, particularly if they want to live in, in major urban centers. But you have this weird phenomenon, or I think it's weird at least, where in an age where we tend to think of generations in increasingly smaller chunks, so Generation X, Generation Y, Millennials, Gen Z, they're getting down to sort of 10-year chunks, whereas the baby boomers, that was a 25-year chunk. We think of that as a generation, which came in a 25-year chunk. But they're reading the books their, their grandparents read and identified with, and their parents read and identified with, and now they're reading and identifying with them. And it was that continuity that got me really interested. It was that idea that even though you might swap out a teddy boy like Arthur Seaton 
for sort of some sort of proto skinhead like Alex DeLarge in A Clockwork Orange, or even for the sort of heroin chic crowd of train spotting, the concerns remain the same and the anxieties remain the same. So it's, it's a matter of, you know, the styles change, but the substance remains largely the same. And in that sense, there is a profound continuity with the boomer generation through Gen Z or Gen X, Gen Z, millennials, and so on. What challenges did you encounter writing this book? And what areas do you think still need to be explored? The worst part of writing the book was... Well, it was, it was the worst part to begin with, and then eventually I sort of came to see it as, as, uh, as a good thing, was that I couldn't find novels by women written about youth culture. So there are novels by women about young women. Muriel Spark is, is the, the one who comes to mind most readily here, but also Maeve Binchy um, as well. But they weren't writing about youth cultures. So they weren't writing about recognizable post-war youth group identities. So when you get the women of slender means, uh, for example, Spark is writing about young women who are out on their own, trying to make their way in the world of work, and they're living in boarding houses and so on. But they don't, they, they don't identify as members of youth cultural groups. They don't think of themselves as Judies or as skinheads or whatever it might be, teddy girls. Uh, they think of themselves as young women making their way in the world. And I read through so many books trying desperately to find works by women about youth culture. So not about cultures of youth, but about youth cultures. And I couldn't find them. And I thought, well, this is awful because uh, the last thing we really need uh, today is another book by a straight white guy about the experience of straight white men in the most prosperous economy the world has ever seen. But I began to see that the absence of women writing about youth culture was actually a sign of the, the massively broadened horizons that women were experiencing and the broadened opportunities they were experiencing after the war. Men were writing about youth cultures and identifying with youth cultures, I think in large part because there was a tremendous amount of anxiety about identity, about masculinity, about belonging, about what it looked like to become a man in an era that was no longer defined by the potential for uh, martial demonstrations of mature masculinity. So once, once the atomic bomb comes along, everything shifts because even though you still have conflicts in Korea and you have conflicts in, in Vietnam, the fact is that especially for British and Irish young men, there is precious little in the way of, of the capacity to demonstrate mature masculinity through martial prowess. There isn't much need for it. There is a lot of prosperity. It's easy to be read as soft particularly in relation to the generation that lived through the war, the generation before that that lived through the Great Depression, and so on. And that anxiety translates into a kind of intensive self-scrutiny about masculinity and masculine possibilities in the world. Young women, on the other hand, despite the 1950s backlash against women, so during the war, women went into the workplace, they were in factories, they took on important roles on the home front, 
in the 50s when the soldiers returned there was a kind of massive backlash against women's uh, participation in the public sphere but they never really were able to put the genie back in the bottle and women i think generally and particularly women writers saw that what was open to them was a whole new field of uh, of expression and of inquiry that allowed them to uh, to explore new options it, what it what it meant to become a mature woman suddenly was wide open and there were all kinds of new ways of exploring it whereas i think young men were experiencing it as a a, a, a diminished horizon for of possibility a diminished horizon for achievement especially if women were now going to be able to do things that men had traditionally had uh, as their purview so women weren't writing the books which is why I wasn't finding them. At first, I was really afraid that I wasn't finding them because I wasn't looking in the right places. Uh, and I thought that that was going to reflect poorly on me as, as a scholar. Um, at, but then I began to realize the books aren't there. And I think that that's what would be really interesting next would be to take a look at how did women writers write about women's coming of age after the war in ways that are distinctly different from these books about youth culture. Is this a question of genre? I mean, I think of Sylvia Plath being one of those, but using poetry as f the form. Right. Um, was there something about the novel in particular that was masculine, or what do you think that is? I don't think so, because women are writing novels. They're writing lots of them. Iris Murdoch is writing, Angela Carter's writing, Penelope Fitzgerald is writing, Muriel Spark is writing. There are lots and lots of women writing novels. They're just not writing about these obsessive concerns with group cultural identity. They're writing sci-fi. They're writing fantasy. They're writing realist novels. They're writing romance and, and melodrama. And they're sort of, in terms of genre, they, they're sort of exploring all these new genres. And it's not to say that all the male writers are writing the same kind of book. But certainly all the ones that I talk about are writing the same kind of book. And in the post-war, I think you see really just divergent trajectories. And women are writing all kinds of crazy, interesting new stuff. When you get to the 1970s, it's women are writing tremendous stuff. But it is not by any means the kind of overwrought... Uh, frankly, narcissistic work that someone like Martin Amos writes, for example. I hope he doesn't hear this. <laughs> I don't think he would care. Um, it seems like there's a paradox when we're talking about these young male writers writing about this youth culture, hmm. because it is the height of Anglo-American, particularly, let's call it American Anglo, hegemony in the world. Right. right. So this crisis of identity is happening precisely when the socio-political structures are dominating um, during the Cold War. And here we are in 2020 using phrases like OK Boomer in a vastly different world, a sense of globalized um, identity where you're talking about the use of fossil fuels. The West had its heyday of mass fossil fuel consumption, but now it's one of many producing fossil fuels, leading to that more globalized sense of anxiety, I think, that we have now in climate change and the Anthropocene. Um, what is that paradox? Why is there this sense of powerlessness precisely when the 
as you said, we live in one of the wealthiest, most powerful cultures of its time. Well, we, I think we live in its twilight. I think that, as you say, the the, the baby boom was a boom. Um, and from, in, in the United States, it starts right after the war. The war kickstarts the economy and the United States remains an economic powerhouse today, 70 years later. Uh, in England, it takes a lot longer because the Eng England suffered because it was it was bombed. It was largely destroyed. Its infrastructure was was roughed up, if you like, during the war. And it ended up contributing to reconstruction of Europe and repatriation of refugees and so on. So uh, rebuilding in England took a long time. It was into the 1960s before rationing was fully uh, ended in, in England. So you know, the 50s were not a time of enormous prosperity across the board, certainly in the United States. And that's where the teenager takes off as a, as a teenager phenomenon. What I find kind of interesting is that the, the youth cultural subdivisions seem to have their origin in England, though, in, in Britain, England and Ireland and, and Scotland. So that right after the war, the very sort of beginnings of rock and roll come out of what's called skiffle. And skiffle is largely a sort of folk product of kids playing music on homemade instruments, uh, instruments found in rubbish tips and bomb sites and uh, washed up bases and things like that. So, uh, and that harkens back to the 30s. So there was the great uh, Scottish skiffle artist, Lonnie Donegan, who's singing songs from the 30s, American songs from the 30s, and he's, but he's singing them in this new skiffle mode. And this is what the Quarrymen, which is what the band that eventually became the Beatles, want, they wanted to play skiffle. They were a skiffle band in the first instance. And it really seems to be out of, uh, out of that post-war, the particular post-war culture of uh, uneven prosperity in England especially as it circulated around widespread criminality, the black market, uh, the liberation of goods from American PX stores <laughs> by local SPIVs, uh, which was the name applied to, to the sort of young people who, who got into to criminal, uh, the criminal economy of the black market. Uh, and that's where Teddy Boys come from. So Teddy Boys emerge by the early to mid-1950s out of this sort of underground culture of the black market and uneven prosperity after the war, influenced by the zoot suit fashions of the 1920s and 30s in the United States. But even more, the reason they're called Teddy Boys is because they start to dress in ways that harken back to the Edwardian period. So they're not even looking back to their parents' generation, the generation of the war and the depression. They're looking back to the Edwardian period. They're looking back to their grandparents and the pre-World War I standing of England in the world and the economic and cultural setting there. So you get this interesting combination of, uh, of dehistoricized styles taken up by young people. That really seems to happen in England and then kind of make its way to the United States. So if we think of the kind of the material impetus 
uh, coming from the United States in terms of that first introduction to rock and roll music, the introduction to consumer culture, material acquisition, African-American cultural influences, jazz, for example. But really, post-war youth culture takes off when that first wave of the baby boomers become teenagers and we go from teddy boys to mods and rockers and the British invasion, right? So that what happens is as they become teenagers, if the first wave from 46 becomes teenagers in 1959, 60, 61, 62, 63, that's the British invasion back across the ocean into America. So that there's a sense in which the impetus might come from the United States, but the youth cultural force of group identity seems to really come out of England and Ireland and make its way around the world that way. What do you hope that people take away from your book? Well, I think I hope they have fun reading it. I had a ball writing it. Um, writing is hard and writing books is really difficult. I'm doing another one right now and it's killing me. But I had a great time writing this book. Uh, in large part, I think, because I like the novels. They're not all great novels, but they're fun. Uh, and at the same time, I was getting to talk about youth cultures that I had grown up either hearing about or participating in and historical events and a historical context that helped me make a lot of sense out of where we are today. Uh, but mostly just they're, they're fun books, they're popular books, and I tried to strike a tone that was non-pedantic and non-academic and was a little bit more breezy and fun. I had to leave out some analysis of music and things like that that I really, I had a great time writing, but you can't have everything in there. So I'm really just hoping that people will will take away from the book a sense that that the novels played actually an integral role in helping to take scattered, often chaotic cultural phenomena, give them coherence, and then actually form a kind of template for subsequent generations to think about. Where do you think we should end? I would come back to boomer studies, um, which I actually, you know, I don't know if I have the energy to try to make it be a thing, but... I actually think there's a tremendous amount of potential there. So we already have post-45 as a category, a scholarly category for thinking about um, the world and thinking about particularly Anglo-American culture. But it seems to me that if we give that more specific traction in terms of trying to come to terms with and understand the generation that has been most directly responsible for the current state of the world, there's a tremendous amount we can learn. We can learn a lot about why we are where we are uh, and about the things that we hold as values that are historically contingent. Having your own automobile, owning your own house, those are historically contingent values. Those are not values that have anything more than, a, say, a 70-year pedigree to them. So maybe the idea that you should be able to leave high school, <clears throat> pardon me, go to college, get married, have kids, buy a house, two cars in the garage, 
and so on, that is a post-war fantasy. It is a baby boomer fantasy. It only has the force of reality because the baby boomers were able to realize that fantasy thanks to the unprecedented prosperity they lived in. But if we can understand how much of the values that we currently think of as uh, liberal humanist values actually derive from a historically and culturally anomalous period, that might actually help get rid of some of the resentment, for example. So I was thinking about this just the other day. The boomers are the ones who really gave us the idea that you that travel is a moral virtue. You ought to get out and see the world. You ought to get out and visit other cultures and see how other people live. And we kind of accept that still today as an inherent good. It's good to get out and see other people and learn about other cultures. But jet travel, cruise ship travel are huge problems for environmental damage. And it's up to a new generation to formulate alternative values that are not anchored in, for example, uh, a post-war mania for seeing the world and instead might be anchored in a kind of modest stewardship of the world without having to see it with your own eyes. So flight shaming is a new thing. Cruise shaming is a new thing. Um, precisely because I think young people today realize that there are things worth preserving. Things can be worth preserving even if you haven't visited already. And I, that's where I think there's, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of understanding why some of the apparently timeless values we have now, where they came from and what, what their roots are and why we might not want necessarily to keep them. Well, doesn't this become a class thing again in terms of the grand tour of the 19th century? As a young person who grew up in a very small community, traveling did open my eyes to other ways of being. Right? So there is something there. It's, um, I think a lot of my resentment now has more to do with the fact I can't afford it anymore versus the necessary right. impact. I would, I would hope to seek out you know, cleaner travel options, right? to have that ability. Right. So where do, we, where do we cross that line of class consciousness and ability uh, versus be happy where you are in your lot in life because of these greater global concerns. So I think actually thinking about the generational divide between the boomers and subsequent generations in class terms is exactly right. Because there is a profound sense that boomers belong to a privileged class uh, and that they have exercised and enjoyed unearned privilege for decades. And that subsequent generations are entitled to those same things. And so that's one of the great things. I love that boomers will criticize millennials and say they're so entitled as though the boomers were not the most entitled generation in history. And they created the conditions of entitlement that we see today. Uh, the narrator in Absolute Beginners, Colin McInnes' 1959 novel, really lets his mother have it at one point. And he says, you created us. You gave us all kinds of rights and no responsibilities. And he's a boomer. He, he is a, the, his nickname, his name is the teenager. He doesn't have a name in the novel. He's an iconic teenager. And he just says to her straight up, you created a generation of spoiled kids. 
we don't have any re responsibilities, but we have tons of rights and we have lots and lots of money to spend. His mother has just said, the problem with you is you have too much money to spend. And he says, where do you think I get it? Uh, and he sort of points out that, you know, they didn't come from nowhere. So I think you're right that that sense of class-like resentment uh, is palpable and uh, and is uh, behind when things get angry. So do you think your book points out this? It's, it's again, one of these occasions to make obvious what's there, but you don't mm -hmm. realize until it's obvious that we're sort of in this new era of having responsibility placed back upon us as a, as a group, as a community, as a society, right. and that your book sort of exposes this almost magical point in uh, Anglo-American history of all rights, no responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what makes people angry is that they're, being, they're having the responsibility for the previous generation's excesses placed on them. So, you know, when I talk about travel, sure, now, I'm not saying don't don't travel. Millennials can't afford to travel, by and large, you know, as you, you pointed out. Uh, but also, the idea that you would take an annual family road trip, for example, is so entirely dependent upon the post-war building of the interstate system in the United States and the, the culture of the automobile, the culture of the private car in the United States, which have have disseminated around the world. Uh, but the idea that you have that as a kind of standing right, where are you guys going this summer, is a boomer question. Prior to World War II, it was a class question. Where will you be summering? Right, and, and that was a question that you would only ask at a certain class level and above. After the war, the idea became that in this sort of broad democratization, that everyone was entitled to live like the well-to-do. And that was sustainable economically for a few decades. But as it turned out, environmentally, it's, it's been a disaster. So that's where I think there's, there are some really interesting tensions uh, afoot between the generation today that's being told, in effect your job is going to be to save the planet and the generation that largely looks like they were responsible for destroying the planet. And again, I don't think it's a matter of blame so much as they did what anyone would have done, right? They also gave us Silent Spring. They gave us Rachel Carson. They gave us Earth Day. They gave us the hippies. And, you know, it's not as though the boomers are were an entirely sort of focused on resource consumption with complete disregard for the planet. But the fact is that the last 50 years of boomer culture have left us with a planet that is in dire straits. But they've also left us with this massive cultural template for understanding young people and young people's potential. And I think that if you put, without understanding that part, you can't actually understand why we are where we are in terms of generational tensions today. So if we're thinking about potential readerships, it seems like all generations are going to get something out of this book. I hope so. Like I said, that all, all the generations that are still alive are, are reading these novels still. They still are all in print. They still all have wide readership. So I was, that was what I was kind of trying to get at. Sort of, well, if everybody is still reading these novels... What's going on? What, what are they engaging with or tackling that continues to appeal? 
Well, thank you very much for joining me for this conversation today. Hey, thanks for having me. It was fun. Um, okay, Boomer. All right, Millennial. Get back to your third job. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcast. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.